Can you just point your hand towards Pastor Peter for me this morning? Just everyone point your hand towards him. Father, we know that you have something to speak to us today, Lord God. And Father God, I ask that you would just use Peter mightily. Would you, Lord, empower him with your anointing and your voice? Would you speak the words that you need for him to speak this day, oh God, that we may hear and that we may receive? Let the words that fall from heaven be like manna falling on Feed us, O oh God, today. Would you feed us, O oh Lord? We receive all that you have for us today. We ask that you would strengthen them now. In your son's name we pray. Amen and amen. So I love you, man. Good morning. Um, Carlton has no idea how much that meant to me, um, and uh, will carry me through today. Um, you guys know that I'm very like vulnerable and honest with you, right? And, and can so I sometimes you know folks who grew up in church are not accustomed to doing that and. I'm not one of them, and so I, I just want to share a vulnerability this morning, okay? So um, I struggle, I struggle when I come up here to preach and the sanctuary is not packed out. When there's not a lot of people here, I'm just being honest, I struggle, like, deeply. Like, my insecurities and all these things come rushing at me, like... I'll just keep talking, yep. I know it's a marathon weekend and holiday and all that stuff, but I'm just, and I just struggle, you guys. And so that's why I'm saying, Carlton, I don't know if he knows and what well, he actually does. And so I, I struggle with that. And so what I've had to tell myself this morning, and, and I know this, um, one, uh, that I do what I do for the audience of one. And, and really, and I don't, I'm not just saying that to like do the spiritual thing. Really, like you guys need to know. And I don't always do this well, but like I need to remind myself that I, I preach for the audience of one and my Heavenly Father's um, And then secondly, um, that the people that are supposed to be here are here. So, hmm. uh, we're talking about discipleship and uh, and I was really excited to preach this morning, too. Um, I still am. I still am. Not I was. I still am. If you're new, or just to catch everybody up, you know, we've been talking about discipleship. And what we've said is that a disciple is someone who follows Jesus. A disciple is someone who invites other people to follow Jesus. And a disciple is someone who follows Jesus in community. And, and as I've been reflecting on our sermon series, I, it, it, it dawned on me, and, and I, I've been thinking about this, it hit me this week, that, that we all need to sort of come around, pause for a moment, and ask, like, do we realize who it is that we're called to follow? Like, and here's what I mean. Like, who, who this person is that, that makes these, these incredible Offensive, frankly, demands on us when he says, I need you to abandon everything. I need you to forsake everything. I need you to deny everything. I need like, to, and to follow me. And so we've been talking about following him and what it means to follow him. And today, I just, in, in this sort of, as we continue our journey, just to kind of, just pause for a moment, go, do, do you realize, do I realize who it is that we're being called to follow? Uh, Someone said the size of our worship 
will oftentimes be affected by the size of our God and, 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 and our worship of God. And then I'm not just about singing, you guys. I'm talking about our life response to God will oftentimes parallel how big we think God is, right? And so when, when our worship is teeny tiny and small, I think that is because it's reflected in maybe the fact that we see God as small. This is why I've, I've, I've said it's really hard for worry and worship to coexist in the same space. I think one displaces the other. I, I think the reason why we worry is because our worship, our view of God, it's oftentimes not where it needs to, to be. Um, so this morning, just as, 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 a, as a way, and I'm going to geek out about this, and if it doesn't get you excited, uh, sorry about that, but, but just to, to get my mind and wrap my mind around who it is that we worship, I, I wanted to remind you that we live on planet Earth. Live on planet Earth, okay? And I think we're going to see a slide. We live on planet Earth, and last time I checked, there's 7.7 .7 billion people on this tiny planet, planet Earth, okay? Sister Andrina, can we see that, or is it not showing up there? Yeah, there it is. 7.7 .7 billion people. Now, now, here's the thing, though, and, and you and I kind of need to resize. Planet Earth, though, if you kind of consider the larger scheme of things, it's not very big because planet Earth... Scientists say that we could fit over a million, 1.3 to be exact, Earth in a star sun. It's not, it's, not, it's not very big, is it? So when you consider how small the Earth is compared to the sun, and then you realize the sun actually is not a very big star either because the sun is tiny compared to a medium-sized red star called Antares. And you can fit how many suns in the Antares? 50 million suns in this medium-sized star. Antares. And the Antares is a medium-sized star, and it's of one, of one billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Are you, are you with me so far? Now, uh, just to give you a perspective, Milky Way Galaxy, just wrap your mind around that, okay? Milky Way Galaxy, though, the nearest galaxy to us is the Sagittarius Dwarf Elliptical Galaxy, for those of you astronomy uh, buffs. And the nearest galaxy to our Milky Way Galaxy is 80,000 light years away. Just to give you a perspective, 80,000 light years. One light year equals six trillion miles. And scientists say that there are over 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Thank you for the science lesson, Peter, but what does that have anything to do with? And then Isaiah comes along, and Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, who else has held the oceans in his hand and who measured off the universe with his fingers? Do you want to know how big God is? God says, I measure one end of the universe to the other from the tip of my thumb to the tip of my pinky. So I have to ask a silly question. Is this the kind of God that you and I go, you know, I need to make room in my life for him. Is this the kind of God you and I negotiate with? Are you tracking with me, church? Is this the kind of God that you come and you say, I'll do some things if you will do? Is this the kind of God? If you really see who God is, does he not say, I demand everything? Does he not come and say, you want to relate to me? It's all consuming. It's all absorbing. This is the reason why, and I've been challenging you guys. Read the Gospels. Every time somebody encountered Jesus, nobody had a mild reaction to him. Nobody said, you know, that's kind of interesting. Let me go think about that. 
When you see anybody encountering Jesus, and this is C.S. Lewis, it's not original to me, he says people are put into motion. They're put into action. What do I mean? There are people who are so angry and so furious at him, they're trying to throw him off cliffs and trying to kill him. And then there are other people who are so terrified of him, they're saying, get away from me, I know who you are. Or the other response is people fell prostrate and said, worship you, command me. You can't encounter this Jesus who says, follow me and have a mild reaction and a response. A relationship with him would demand everything. Relationship with him will be all-consuming and all-absorbing. Are you tracking with me, church? Follow me. Who is it that asks us to follow him? So the crazy thing for me is how do we get to a place in America where Christianity, where the, where the normal has become the extraordinary how do we get to this place when Jesus plainly says, here's what it means to follow me. We think it's radical. We think it's extraordinary. When Jesus says, no, it's simple discipleship. And by the way, if this is who God is, he measures off the universe from the tip of his pinky to the tip of his thumb. Does it make any sense that we put limitations on this God? I wonder if any of us have grown cynical and the hearts have become hardened. Have you stopped enduring, believing, and hoping? Do you know who it is that we follow? Do you know who it is that we follow? Do you know who it is that we follow? Storms in your life? I follow someone who says, quiet and the storms and the waves obey him. Addictions in your life and habits you can't seem to kick? He has defeated Satan's sin and death. And no weapon formed against you shall stand. No stronghold, no addictions are too strong for him to deliver you from. The evil, injustice, and suffering in the world. The last time I checked, the tomb is still empty. The kingdom of God is advancing. And one day he's going to come to restore everything. Do you know who it is that we follow? Do you know who it is that we follow? The crisis in discipleship in our country, I've been saying it's because we, I think, have preached the wrong gospel. We live in a land of casual, comfortable, cultural Christianity, and I say what you win them with is what you win them to. And we want to know, what is the gospel according to Jesus, this, this, this God who commands us to follow him? And what we've been doing in this series is simply looking at various passages in the gospels where Jesus either follow me, he says, or he says, this is what it means to be my disciple. And today, I've alluded to this text. Today, we're going to look at Mark chapter 1. So open your Bibles with me in Mark chapter 1. As we continue our series, as we continue our series... Okay? And today, man, is a great day just to anchor ourselves and remind ourselves the one who says, follow me, follow me. Mark chapter 1, verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Following Jesus for John, that is John the Baptist, led to him being imprisoned and eventually being beheaded. Um, do you still want to follow Jesus? Unfortunately, in some parts of today, some churches will preach a junk theology that says something along the lines of hardship and suffering are evidence that you are not following Jesus. That if you are following Jesus, hardship, suffering, and difficulties should not come your way. I wonder how they would square that with Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For you've been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of what? Suffering for him. The freedom that Jesus secured for us is not freedom from suffering and pain. It's freedom in the suffering and pain. Freedom from what? Freedom from bitterness. Freedom from self-pity. Freedom from anger. Freedom from cynicism. Freedom from hopelessness in the crucible of pain and suffering. I just want to remind all of us followers of Jesus that suffering for Christ is an inevitable part of following him. Suffering for Christ is an inevitable part of following him. So I need to ask us something. When is the last time following Jesus cost you something? When's the last time following Jesus cost you a promotion? This is the last time following Jesus cost you a relationship. 
When's the last time following Jesus cost you money and resources? When's the last time following Jesus cost you your comfort? When is the last time obedience to Christ, you ventured into uncomfortable spaces, made uncomfortable decisions, and did uncomfortable things? Has it cost you anything to follow him? In verse 15, Jesus says, time has come. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And I just want to remind us of all this morning, if you've been around new community, you know that this is something we talk about often. The good news that Jesus came proclaiming was not, he came so that you could be forgiven of your sins and go to heaven. That's an incredibly important part of his work on the cross. But the good news that Jesus came proclaiming was what? The good news is that the kingdom of God is here. The rule and reign of God is here. Is that good news to anybody? The good news that Jesus came proclaiming is the rule and reign of God has been ushered in via his death and resurrection. You need to know that here's the trajectory of biblical story. Genesis 1 to 3, everything is perfect. All the relationships are reconciled, are functioning the way God wants it to. Why? Because we are living under the rulership of Jesus as king. And under his kingship, there is shalom. Under his kingship, things are functioning the way they're supposed to. Our relationship with God, each other, and all of creation is functioning the way it's supposed to. But the moment that man and woman decided, we don't want to live under your kingship, we want to pursue self-kingship. I want to come out under your rule and reign and do our own thing. The Bible says literally everything began to fall apart. Everything began to fall apart, disintegration. By the way, can I just tell you, that is what happens every single time you come out from his lordship. Every time you want to make the decision to come out from his lordship, things begin to fall apart. And what is the promise in scripture? The promise of Jesus is what? One day, all things are going to be Reconciled. You notice, I, I grew up in Korea, and I grew up hearing stories and epics. And here's what I found out. There are similarities in every culture in terms of stories and epics and things that people gravitate towards. And it goes something like this. The country or the land or the world is hands in the grips of a wicked king or a wicked queen. And they're all waiting for the true king who will come. Defeat the wicked king, wake us up from our slumber, free us from the tower of prison, and make all things new. The good news that Jesus came proclaiming is what? I am that true king. I am that true king that Jesus has come to renew and restore everything. The first time he came in weakness to die for us, but then he says one day he will return, not as lamb, but as lion to renew and restore everything. The hands of the healer are the hands of the healing king. And Jesus says, I've come to be that true king that will heal and restore everything. One day, everything sad will come untrue. That is the promise. And I don't know about you, but I am particularly reminded today in the world that we live in that Jesus Christ will one day return to renew and restore everything. I need to be reminded today, I don't know about anybody, that injustice will not have the last word. That suffering will not have the last word. That evil will not have the last word. That dictators will not have the worst word. That wars will not have the last word. That Jesus Christ will have the last word. Can I get an amen? And I need that hope today. But here's the thing, church, and this is why I think discipleship in church in America has gone awry. Because the kingdom of God that renewers and restores everything is not just a cosmic thing, but it's also what? It's a personal thing. Because Jesus comes along and he says in Luke chapter 17, verse 21, what? The kingdom of God is also what? Within you. It's present in your heart. The kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, not just something out there, but it has come inside of us. And we realize that becoming a Christian is what? Inviting the rule and reign of God into our hearts. As Paul says, becoming a Christian, a conversion is leaving one kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, and being transferred to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And I got to tell you that transfer, that journey from one kingdom to another, it's not all peace and joy. There's some turbulence there. 
Matter of fact, if you're a Christian, you have not experienced the turbulence. I don't know if you've encountered the real Jesus. Because here's the reason why. I just get, what happens when a king lands in a country where there's another king claiming kingship? There's war. And I got to remind you and me. And when Jesus comes into our lives, there is a small king, a small queen sitting on that throne. And his or her name is who? Me. And it's you. So what happens when King Jesus comes into our lives? And by the way, this King Jesus, I'm just going to do this, okay? I'm just going to do this, okay? This King Jesus doesn't come into our lives and he doesn't say, I've come into your lives to help you manage your kingdom. I don't come into your lives to sort of, you know, get you over the hump because you need a little bit of help. This king comes into our lives and he says, I've come to usher in a whole new kingdom and to give you a whole new agenda. This king comes into our lives and we are what? Thrown off, sitting on the throne of our lives. We are thrown off from thinking that the universe revolves around us. And that feeling of being thrown off, that feeling of realizing we are not the center of the universe, very much feels like our lives are being wrecked. But you know what? That is what we need. Because Jesus says, the good news is repent and believe. It's not just believe, it's repent. Repent is, it's not, this is not scary religious. Repent is simply turn around. Repent is simply go the other way. Repent is do life differently. So what does it mean that believers and followers repent? What are we repenting of? We repent of our self-kingship. Becoming a Christian church is no less than I am no longer on the throne of my life. I'm no longer living for my agenda, my priorities, my goals. I am no longer living for me. My life posture becomes, King Jesus, command me. Where you go, I go. What you do, I do. Not my will, but yours be done. Do you realize that's what it means to follow Jesus? And somebody here says, well, I don't want to follow him then. Because I like, I like being in control and managing my own little kingdom. Really? Is that what you really want? Do you really want to be the one to hold it all together? Can we just be honest? Are, are we not all in here because we tried the self-kingship thing and we've made a mess of our lives? Can we just be honest here this morning, even for some of the most stubborn of us, isn't there a part of you that says, I am tired and exhausted from trying to hold this thing all together? Do you know why? They sing about it this morning. Colossians 1, we've been created by him and for him. In him, all things hold together. Why is my life falling apart? Because our lives are not centered on him. Do you really want to be the one to hold it all together and be little kings and queens in my own little kingdom? Or do you want to say, King Jesus, I'm coming with you. I want to be about your agenda, your priorities, your goals. That's where life is. That's where life is. Do you realize who it is that you're following? Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Verse 17, come follow me. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I'll send you out to fish for people. Remember what we've been saying. This is unheard of in the Jewish tradition because pupils sought out rabbis. Pupils sought out teachers. Rabbis didn't ever go around and saying, I want you to come follow me. Pupils found who the rabbi was that they wanted to learn from, and they pursued the rabbi. They initiated the relationship. They said, can I come and learn from you? So what Mark is showing us and what Jesus ultimately shows us is this, though. We don't come to Jesus. Jesus comes to us. The only reason why we can follow him is because what? He has initiated this relationship with us. John 6, 44, no one can come to me, what? 
unless the Father draws him. John 15, 16, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. The Bible says in no uncertain terms that in our natural state, Romans 3, nobody seeks God. Nobody loves God on their own. The only reason why we do is because God what, opens the eyes of our hearts, opens the eyes of our hearts to recognize who he is to pursue him. It's all grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We only love him because what? He first loved us. I'll tell you why that's important. Because if you're not a Christian here today, and whatever I'm saying is resonating with you, I need you to know I'm not that good a preacher. That's not me. That's the Spirit of God wooing you. If you're sitting here and something is happening in you and going, you know what, he's talking about me. He's talking about my life. I need you to know that's the Spirit of God that's been pursuing you, my friend, day after day after day after day. If anything that you're hearing today, any song, that's God pursuing you so what do i do peter you do what the disciples said check it out verse 18 at once say it with me at once they left their nets and they followed him here's what you do you don't say i'm going to respond to him tomorrow you respond to him what today right now the thing that i love about the book of mark is there's a sense of urgency you hear at once immediately at once immediately at once immediately when god pursues you when god is at work in your heart don't ignore his voice there is a passage in the new testament that says don't quench the spirit you know what that means that means when you hear the voice of god when you hear the voice of god when you hear the voice of god and you do not respond that voice gets dimmer and It doesn't mean he leaves you or abandons you or doesn't love you. But child of God, listen, if you hear the voice of God and you do not respond to that voice, that voice gets dimmer and dimmer. dimmer. Don't quench the spirit. If you're sensing God right now today saying, that's you, don't say tomorrow I'll follow. You follow him today. If you're sensing God say today, don't say tomorrow I'm going to confess a secret sin to somebody. Do it today. Today. Tomorrow might not be promised or guaranteed. Your heart might be hardened tomorrow or next week or next month. At once. Immediately. And by the way, uh, followers of Jesus... Are you following him? Do you realize that by very definition, you can't go faster than the one you're following? Here's what life looks like for some of us. Hey, Jesus, I got my three to five year plan. Let's go. Hey, Jesus, I've got my life mapped out. I know exactly where I need to go. Follow. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, I lead you what? You follow. The greatest threat to God's kingdom is my kingdom. The greatest challenge to his lordship is my self-kingship. Jesus is not a genie in a bottle, and our wish is not his command. Matter of fact, as we grow in grace, his command becomes our only wish. Are you following him? Who's leading who? Whose priorities, agendas reign supreme? Who's leading who? Verse 8, 19. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. Why does Mark mention the father's name, Zebedee? Who cares? Why is that significant? I'll tell you why it's significant. Because in a patriarchal, family-oriented society, fathers or families meant everything to you. There's no identity apart from family, no significance, no future, no worth apart from family. And so when Mark says they've left their father Zebedee in the boat, Mark is literally saying they left what? Everything. The thing that I notice about Jesus in the Gospels, and I want you to read the Gospels over and over again in this sermon series. 
is that Jesus never hides the real cost of following him. Have you noticed that? We live in a culture where we hide the fine print. You know what the fine print is, right? little print, you realize, oh my gosh, that's what I agreed to. You, Jesus never did that. Jesus, Jesus didn't just go, I have come that you might have life. And then turn around to his disciples and go, hey, by the way, there is this deny yourself and carry the cross thing. Shh. He's upfront about it. He says, I'm going to make it plain. See, Jesus didn't just come and say, come to me all who are weary and I'll give you rest. He did say that. You know what else he said? He said, deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. He also said, you need to hate your mother and father, brother and sister. Your, your love for me has to be so great that it compares to others, it seems like it's hate. He also said things like, pluck your eye out, cut off your right arm. Nothing is worth losing me. Do whatever it takes to pursue me. I thought about these guys and what it meant for them to follow him and what it might mean for us. You realize that for these guys, they were leaving comfort. They were leaving the familiar for uncertainty. And you notice that Jesus never tells any of them where they're going. You notice that? The only thing they know is who they're with. The promise of Jesus is that you might not know where you're going, but you'll always know who you're with. His promise was never, you'll never encounter hardship. His promise is in the midst of that, I will always what? Be with you. And I don't know, but disciples of Jesus say, I would rather travel the road of the unknown, the difficult and the costly with Jesus than travel the road of success and prosperity and comfortable without Jesus. They're also leaving what? Their careers, their professions. They dropped their nets, it says. They left their boats and they follow Jesus with nothing in their hands. They left their families. They also left safety. They're gonna follow someone who said things like what? I'm sending you like what? Sheeps among wolves. Men will hate you on account of me. You're gonna be persecuted. Ultimately, these guys were leaving behind themselves. If anyone, Jesus, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and follow me. In a world where everything revolves around the self, entertain yourself, promote yourself, preserve yourself, comfort yourself, Jesus comes and says, slay yourself. I need you to die to kingship. If that is enough, end of, look, end of Luke 14, he says, if anyone wants to come after me, he needs to renounce everything, renounce it all, abandon it all. Following Jesus meant that you lost your life as you know it. Can I just say something this morning? Do you realize that there are Christians all over this world for whom this is literally true? some perspective. I'm going to share a story about Iranian Christians next week, underground churches. Do you realize that for Christians, most Christians all over this world, following Jesus literally means you might die? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us does it literally mean that we would have to leave our families, our careers, and our possessions? Maybe. But at a minimum, I think this is what Jesus is saying. For a follower of Jesus, things like comfort and security are no longer a primary concern. Can I get an amen? For a follower of Jesus, safety is not the thing that we base all of our decisions on. We follow him wherever he leads us. Careers, our careers are no longer about us and making money. Our careers about whatever it is that I do, I advance the kingdom of God wherever he sends me. Material possessions, we no longer live for the material pleasures of this world, but we recognize that we are ultimately called to pursue something bigger and that is eternal treasures that is to come. 
What does it mean, follow Jesus? It means that we forsake and deny our wants and our goals and our desires, and we say, not my will, but yours be done, Jesus. I follow you. You're my king. That's what it means. But I got to tell you this morning, it's worth it. It's worth it. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Have you found in Jesus someone worth giving your life for? Have you found in Jesus something selling, giving everything for? Because here's the thing about that. You will not know the joy or the fulfillment or the satisfaction of knowing Jesus is the treasure that we're looking for. You will not know those things unless you go all in. Why? Because you will not know that Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. You will not know that he is what our souls were created for until you come to that place where you say, like Peter, do you remember Peter in John 6? There are crowds, multitudes listening to Jesus preach. And Jesus says, you really want to follow me? Then you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody says, peace out, we're gone. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, what? Do you want to leave too? And I love what Peter says. This is one of the few times where Peter actually said something worthwhile. John 6, 68, Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Have you come to that place where you're going, where else am I going to go? I've left possessions. I left my family. I left my goals, my priorities. I left safety. I've left convenience. I've left, I left me. Where am I going to go? You. You have the words of eternal life. Is he your king? Is following Jesus, resembling Jesus, pleasing Jesus, serving Jesus, knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, the supreme passion of your life? Church is, is, is Jesus. Is, when, when, when we say things like God wants your time, your money, and your, your energy, it's not because God needs your money, God needs your time, or God needs your worship. God doesn't need your time. He has been. He always will be. God doesn't need your money. If God wanted your money, he'd take it. God doesn't want your money. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. God doesn't need your worship. If you don't worship, the rocks will cry out. The reason why God says, I want it is because those things are outer signs of an inner reality, and the inner reality is something that is more important than Jesus. Remember, throughout this sermon, we've been saying, here's what it means to follow him. It means what? It means that he doesn't want to share you. He doesn't want to be one of many. He wants to be your one and only. He, wants, he doesn't want to be your top priority. He wants to be your only priority. It's not because he's insecure. It's because he wants your freedom. It's because he wants your freedom. If there's anybody in here this morning going, that whole self, the whole kingship and following Jesus and giving up of his control, no thank you. I don't mind being in control. Can I just awaken you from your delusion? None of us in this room are in control. Can I get an amen? I say this all the time. The, the, the sooner we wake up from that delusion that we are in control, the sooner that we recognize that following Jesus is the best thing that we can do. Here's the reason why, friend, because all of us in this room are living for something, a master, a lord, a king. We're not free. There's something in our lives that we are pursuing with all of our possessions, our wealth, all of our time, effort, and energy, and whatever that thing is, that is the real king of our lives. And the thing about all these other false and little kings is that they ask that you and I shed our blood, sweat, and tears to procure it. I didn't realize that Jesus is the only king who came and shed his blood, sweat, and tears to procure you. Don't you realize that Jesus Christ is the only king that can set us free?
they left their father Zebedee in their nets and they followed him. Mark 1 is followed by 15 chapters of Mark where we see what following Jesus meant for the disciples. And you and I realize there's this one point where James and John, <laughs> sorry, I just think it's funny. <laughs> you'll, you'll see why. Uh, James and John are walking along with the disciples and they say to Jesus, Jesus, when you ultimately get to you know, sit on that throne, in your administration, your prime cabinet positions. Make one of us like your defense secretary and the other one of us your prime minister, right? Let us sit at the right line. In other words, these disciples are following Jesus and the whole time they're thinking, we're gonna follow him and his coattails into administration in his kingdom. And they soon realized that following Jesus actually meant being ridiculed, being rejected, being tossed back and forth, storms out in sea, traveling from town to town, not knowing what they were going to eat, where they were going to stay. And in the case of John the Baptist, following Jesus meant being beheaded. In other words, following Jesus for a lot of the disciples seemed like one dead end after another. And the ultimate dead end came when they watched Jesus hanging on a cross. I, I, I want to just ask you something. Can anybody relate this morning to uh, what it's like to follow Jesus to a seeming dead end? Come on now. I need you to participate. Does anybody know what it's like to follow Jesus? Seems like dead end. Does any, has anybody here know the experience of where are you going? Where is this leading to? What's this going to end? Uh, anybody know what that's like? Any, if you follow Jesus long enough, you know that you follow him to sometimes seeming dead ends we're going do you know what you're doing hardship suffering unanswered prayer deaths of someone that we love relationships that are gone one dead end after another and you find yourself saying can i trust you because remember we will never follow someone we don't trust can i trust you can i trust you and what do you do then you need to follow the thread George MacDonald in his book, The Princess of the Goblin, tells a story. I was going to have some background story music, but see, see, I think I'm just going to tell this without any music. Tells the story of an eight-year-old girl named Irene who realizes that there's a fairy grandmother who lives up in the attic. And she meets with this fairy grandmother, and the grandmother sort of becomes like a guide for her, a guardian. And she teaches Irene, makes her wise. One day, Irene goes up to meet her grandmother, and grandmother gives her a ring with a thread attached to it and a ball of yarn, and she says, I'm going to give you this ring. And she says, whenever you're in danger and you're afraid, I want you to put the ring under your pillow and follow the thread wherever it leads you. And Irene tries to fill the thread, and she's like, I can't, I can't, I can't, see, I can't see it, grandmother. And grandmother says, you can't see it. The thread is too fine. You could only feel it. And Irene begins, oh, there it is. There it is. There it is. And grandmother says, remember, ring under the pillow, follow the thread. Remember that I hold one end of the thread while you hold the other. One day Irene is in a room in total pitch darkness sleeping and shears goblins outside. They've come into her home. And she's terrified, but she has the awareness to say, I remember what grandmother said. So she takes the ring and she puts it under her pillow. And sure enough, she starts feeling the threat. And she goes, oh, there it is. So this is going to take me straight to my grandmother. But to her surprise, as she follows the thread, it doesn't take her up to her attic. It takes her outside. And as she continues to follow the thread, it takes her to the cave of the goblins. And as she follows the thread, pile of stones, a dead end. And she goes, huh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go backwards. So she turns around, starts feeling the, but as soon as she turns around and tries to go backwards, the thread disappears.
nowhere backwards would lead. She could only go forward. And it hits her. She begins thinking about her grandmother. She remembers who her grandmother is and what her grandmother said. She remembers all that her grandmother had taught her, how kind she was, how beautiful she was, how wise she was. Grandmother can be trusted. And Irene recognizes that the thread and wherever it led must have been sent by her grandmother. And even though she doesn't realize what it is, she must follow the thread. So she follows the thread and the thread leads to cave. And so she starts tearing down this pile of stone. She starts tearing it down and her fingers are bleeding. Her fingers are bleeding. She starts tearing it down. And as she's tearing it down, she hears a faint voice inside the pile of stones. And it's her friend, Curdy. It's her friend, Curdy, who had been trapped inside this pile of stones. And as she realizes her friend, Curdy, Curdy, to his utter astonishment, comes out of it and says, how'd you find me? And Irene says, my grandmother sent you. I followed the thread, and the thread led me here, and this is why she sent me to rescue you. And Curdy says, great, we're done, let's get out of here. To which Irene says, no, 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 thread continues and I must follow the thread. If I had stopped following the thread, I would not have rescued you. So I must follow the thread wherever it leads, wherever it goes, I must follow the thread. Sometimes following the path that Jesus laid out for us will seem like a dead end. But the threat doesn't go backward. Luke 9, Jesus says what? No one who puts a hand to the plow and look what? Backwards is fit for the kingdom of God. You must follow the thread. What does that mean, Peter? That means when you're in a situation where following Jesus seems like it's led to a dead end, you have to say to yourself, I trust you unconditionally. I will obey you faithfully. I'm not going to bail on you, Jesus, and go backwards. I will follow the thread wherever it leads. Because here's the thing Jesus says. He says, Peter, I want to make you into a glorious creature that's going to become fishers of men. But Peter, your self-kingship is destroying you and destroying people around you. I want to heal you of your self-kingship so that you can be used by me to be an agent of reconciliation in the world. And to do that, I will sometimes send you on a journey of difficulty and pain. But my child, you must what? Follow the thread. Follow the thread. And if at some point you go, but what if the thread leads to nowhere? Then I need you to remember that Jesus ultimately followed the thread to that. The thing about Jesus is he never asks you and me to do something he never did himself. When he asked John and James to leave their boat and follow him, Jesus had already left the throne of God and come to earth. When Jesus says you must deny yourself and follow me, Philippians 2, Paul says, he who in very nature God did not consider himself equality with God something to be grasped, but he became what? Obedient, even obedient unto death. When Jesus says, there is no greater love than this than to lay down your life for your friends, that's exactly what he did. When you go, does following this thread really lead to Jesus? Can I trust? Remember that Jesus followed his thread into hell so that you and I would follow the thread into the arms of our Father. 
Jesus followed the thread to destruction so that you and I could follow the thread to greatness. Jesus' kingship will not crush you. He was crushed for you. Follow the thread. Follow the thread. Follow the thread. The thread does not work backwards. Follow the thread. Follow the thread. Pray with me. doesn't work backwards. Follow the thread. Remember the character of the one who says to you and me, follow the thread. Remember what he said. Remember what he's done. Remember his wisdom. Remember his kindness. Remember his beauty. Remember that he holds one end of the thread while you hold the other. Remember that anywhere the thread takes you, his promise is, I will be with you to the ends of the age. To those of my friends today who came weary, worn out, feeling like your life is stuck in a dead end, feeling like you're lost, feeling like you are completely at a loss for where to go, and you're at a crossroads, the word for you today is follow the thread. It doesn't work backwards. Follow the thread. Follow the thread. Church, 
There's a posture of worship that symbolizes submission, surrender, dependence. Will you lift your hand up?
Jesus.